So let's begin. Uh, I'm sure we'll have some people joining us along the way. Um, so this is basically an old speech I gave, and I realized that there's a lot of stuff here. And, uh, you know, for better or for worse, whether that means I speak for too long on a Shabbat or, uh, you know, maybe it also means there's just a lot of content here. But I think there's a lot to parse through, and I think it has a lot of bearing on, you know, what we're going through today. The concept of freedom, you know, there's there's this superficial idea about what freedom means. A lot of us think of freedom as just not being a slave, you know, not being in jail, you know, having the ability to go where you want and do what you want. But the more you study psychology, the more you study things about the human condition, like Dr. Nasser was mentioning the idea of free will, you know, what is it that drives us? What is it that allows us to really make decisions, you know, and some people get into, unfortunately, bad habits and are they really free? There's so much here. I think we're so lucky to be part of a tradition where we, we place such an infinite amount of value on the idea of free will, the idea of freedom. And we have an entire holiday of Pesach, of course, where we celebrate the concept of freedom. Hi, Papa. How you doing? <laughs> and it's, it's amazing that we're able to, to do that. And it says something about the Jewish people, I think, is, you know, as a whole. And I, I want to go through some different ideas with you regarding that and hopefully we'll re really flesh out and I want this to be interactive please you know any questions you have any comments I don't mind going over the 830 mark if you have to go no problem so let's uh, let's begin all right so in this week's parasha right in, in uh, parashat Beshalah when I gave this speech the Hachamim made this really outlandish midrash right and they said that when B'nai Israel were going through the Yamsu if you can imagine it there were fruit trees growing on the sides of the Yamsuf. And a woman would be able to take from the fruit and give it to her child to eat. Now, if you know what what are we thinking right now? You know, you're you're describing the most profoundly miraculous event in the history of, of the world. And the Hachamim didn't find that sufficient. They had to add something to that. They had to say, oh no, there's fruit trees too. What it wasn't amazing enough that God split the sea? So, so going in the, in the direction of Harambam, I think it makes sense to always, whenever you read a Midrash, you need to know what, what Harambam talks about. When the Hachamim speak, they speak in riddles. Hachamim are not just speaking you know, on a superficial level. They expect you as the reader to do that extra work. And if you're a fit student, then you're going to really understand what they meant. Now, the, uh, the way that Rabbi David Foreman really beautifully puts it is as follows. He says, you start reading the text of Kiriat Yamsuf, right? The splitting of the Yamsuf. And we see a certain pattern beginning to emerge, right? You read these words. And God started moving the sea. Right? And God started moving the sea with this really strong wind, Right? And you, you look, The wind of God is over here. And again, we have God using a certain wind to begin this process. Where is this pasuk from? Right here. Bereshit, very good. Right, the, the second pasuk of Bereshit. Then the next thing we start to notice, Right, during Kiryat Suf, it was the middle of the night, but the cloud of God lit up the sky. And the encampment of the Egyptians did not fully approach the encampment of Bnei Israel. They weren't able to harm us. 
And then you read in Bereshit, what's the next thing? We hear about light and darkness again. And it's at the nighttime. Same thing going on here. Or and Laila and Hoshech. It, it couldn't be more obvious. And then you continue forward. And then you, sure enough, God splits the waters in a horizontal direction. That's what's going on. Right? And it becomes dry land. So the, then you obviously know that uh, in Bereshit, and the thing that happens next so not only does God split the sea, split split the waters on the third day in a vertical direction, but also the next day He splits the water from the dry land, and again there's the appearance of dry land. So what Hachamim were doing was something really brilliant. When they continued forward and they said the next thing is that there were fruit trees growing on the side of the Yamsuf, they were saying, you as the reader should notice what I said as being quite outlandish. And if you do notice that, maybe you'll start to notice the other connections to Ma'aseh Bereshit because it'll force you to say, why did we say this? Why did we talk about plants? Because that's the next thing that happens in Ma'aseh Bereshit after the dry land appears was the growth of plants. Right, so in a nutshell, Hashem is recreating chaos for Mitzrayim. Because Mitzrayim did not recognize the Selim Elohim inside of every human being. And they didn't understand that all of existence was really unified by this one ground of being. right? And they believed in a pantheon of gods. right? And when you believe in a pantheon of gods, even though they're very powerful, who really has all the power? Who's able to manipulate all these different gods, you know? And uh, unfortunately, I, I think that's that some people, when they when they you know think of uh, the sefirot in Kabbalah, you know, it it, it 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 could border on this kind of thinking. If you don't think about it properly, I'm not saying that that it's complete avodah zarah, definitely not. But I think if you don't have a sophisticated view of what um, the, the, idea, the ideas in Kabbalah are trying to say, then you might start to approach this idea of a pantheon. right? You have these different attributes of God you could start to manipulate. That's not the God we believe in. The God we believe in is unified. And because God is unified, He has all the power, we have none. In the, in the, in the view of the Egyptians, because there's many gods, they, really we have all the power and they kind of have none, in a sense. right? So I think, but the deeper issue here is, why does Hashem make these parallels at this juncture of history. Well, the Hachamim have another beautiful Midrash. They, they interpret the word Bereshit as follows. They say, what is Bereshit? Bereshit is Bishvil Yisrael Shenikra Reshit. Right? Be, they say, is Bishvil and, and for the sake of. And Reshit, they take an obscure pasuk from Yirmiyahu, where Yirmiyahu says that Bene Yisrael are Reshit Tevu'ato, that they, Bene Yisrael are God's first crops. Right, the ones that he values the most. And they say, when it says Bereshit, Bara Elohim, it means that God created the world for the sake of Am Yisrael. Now, I don't think anybody really ever took that literally. I don't think that anybody in their right mind would believe that God only created the world for human beings. There's so many things that are, you know, we live in, in such a corner of the universe. Maybe some people in certain eras did believe that. But at the end of the day, I think it's much deeper. I think that they were saying that God is interested in having a relationship with creation. And that by human beings being in a state of spirituality, being in a state of morality, and that's what Am Yisrael is trying to propagate in the world, is being a people that recognizes the unity of God and recognizes God's involvement in the world, 
that allows, in a sense, the universe to know itself, right? We are pieces. We're basically stardust, according to Carl Sagan, right? All human beings just emerged from the earth, right? We are all pieces of this stuff. So by human beings being aware of existence, that's a way for us to really connect to God. And like it says in Bereshit, The Spirit of God was hovering on the face of the deep. What that means is, the same thing it means the other time it uses lerahef, which is to hover. It uses it in Ha'azinu, that, that God is like, Al-Gozalav Yerahef, God is hovering upon Bene Israel. It means God's invested. God cares about what happens to us. So when, when Hachamim say God created the world for us, He doesn't mean, it, they, they don't mean like the whole universe is only created for human beings. They really mean that God's intention, once He has created the world, is for us to have a relationship with Him. Because that's the beauty of everything. Everything in nature, you look around, in a sense, everything is doing the will of God. Every, you know, the plants grow and the, the gravitational forces spin, spin the planets and, the, and whatever, whatever it is, what have you. But at the end of the day, we are that being with this intelligence. And we could choose to connect to God. Right, so this is not only the, that connection, but in addition to that, we have that this entire ordeal is a new genesis. It's a new Bereshit for Am Yisrael. God is saying, I'm the one who created the world. And because I created the world, I can manipulate the world. I can change the way that reality behaves. And because I care so much about what you become as a nation, therefore, I'm going to manipulate it in order to further my plans of Bereshit. So if that means splitting the ocean, like I did splitting the sea, splitting the, the waters in Genesis, I'm going to keep on doing things for you to further my goal about creation. And that's a really beautiful storyline that we could add to reality and a way for us to kind of fit in as humanity. So my realization about Genesis in general is also as follows. The same way that each individual human being grows up from childhood to adulthood, so too does all of humanity develop in the story of Adam and Hava. What that means is as follows. As individuals, and as uh, we, we grow up from being children to adults, we learn, you know, the idea of sin as we get older. We learn the idea of nakedness. We learn the idea of sex. And the same thing was really happening on a species level. The species Adam, right, Ha-Adam, the Adam, the humanity, also learns the same thing as we grow older. And as we develop, we develop a cerebral cortex, the same way that our brains develop as we get older. We go from eating off the trees and having everything pre presented to us on a silver platter, both as children and as hunter-gatherers, uh, when we were, you know, kind of in that early state of the garden, if you will, right? And we go from a state of ignorance to a state of knowledge of shame and sin. So I think the lesson that's being established in Bereshit is as follows, that when, the, when we read the Torah, we are meant to see our individual selves on a macrocosmic scale in the experiences of the nation of Israel, which means that when we read the story of Bnei Israel, it's not just the story about a nation. This is a story about a human being who's also growing up. So I would say that when Bnei Israel are slaves in Egypt, it's, it's, it's kind of like a young way of being. It's a way of being where you don't really have free will yet, because as a child, you're so driven by these forces that are beyond you, they're kind of built into your genes. You don't really have such a developed prefrontal cortex until you're in your 20s, right? So what that's saying is that you need to read that and say, okay, we're in Egypt, we're still stuck in that old way of thinking. And then we leave Egypt 
and we have our national adolescence, right? And that's what we're reading about in in Parashat B'Shalach, in, in our in our uh, portion here, right? So let's let's try to apply some of these insights into Parashat B'Shalach from this point of view, saying, you know what? Okay, so this is reflecting our national maturation, but also a maturation on a personal level, from slavery to freedom, from childhood to adulthood, right? So. The faith of Am Yisrael, interestingly enough, is going to be tested, according to the Mishnah, a total of six times in this week's parasha alone. So I want to see if maybe we could see what lessons a few of these different tests of our faith has to teach us. All right, so the first one comes when B'nai Yisrael are petrified when they see the Egyptians coming, right? Let's read that in the text here. All right, so we have, this is after, uh, after Kiriat Yamsuf. B'nai Israel see the Egyptians coming earlier on and they were really scared. And God says, you know what? Just, uh, this is not a time for prayer. This is a time for action. And then after all the miracles, and we sing the song, praising God for what happens. Read this here. Now that's a very interesting word here, right? The word Vayasa is not Vayisa B'nai Israel, which would mean B'nai Israel traveled. Vayasa means Moshe made them travel. He moved them. They physically did not want to leave Kiryat Yamsuf. They were still clinging to Egypt. As crazy as that sounds, they're, they're petrified. They, they have great trepidation about moving forward. Because moving forward implies a whole new level of responsibility. It implies that you need to go and be a different kind of a person than you used to be. Because it's so easy to be in that slave mindset. right? And now we see, of course, the first thing. They go, they can't find water. And they couldn't drink the water in Mara, and that's why they call it Mara. Now, the question is, is it really true that B'nai Israel did not have any water at this point? You know, it makes sense that B'nai Israel, I think the text even points it out, they didn't have time to really, you know, bake bread, but they, they surely brought some, uh, some water with them or something like that. I mean, it stands to reason, right? So it, it's possible, I'm not saying, saying for sure, but it's possible that they might have actually had some reserves of water with them, but they did not want to empty those reserves. Right? So when they say manishte, they don't mean what are we going to drink right now. They mean once this water that we have dries up and that we drink it all, what are we going to drink after that? So I think the lesson here is as follows, that Bnei Israel are being called upon by God right now in this transitional phase between childhood and adulthood, slavery to freedom, that we're being challenged to live a life of faith. We're being challenged to live a life of vulnerability. We're not sure what's going to happen next. But we're really, we need to hold fast to the idea that, that Hashem is going to be our source of guidance. Right, so we find ourselves now during this whole coronavirus ordeal. Nobody knows what's going to happen. I don't know when I'm going to be taking my test for medical school. People don't know when they're going to be getting back to work. It's a very difficult situation for many, many people. And yet, Hashem is calling upon us, it seems... And saying, you know what? Take this as an opportunity for growth. Take this as an opportunity for the rest of your life, which is pretty much the same. You never know what's going to happen next. You never have a guarantee about anything. Nobody knows if they're going to wake up tomorrow. Every single day is a gift. So if you've been taking things for granted till now, which I surely have, you know, we all get into this routine and we get lost in that routine. I would say, for in, a, in a sense, you know, don't take take me the wrong way here, but thank God for coronavirus. Thank God for something that kind of jolts, jolts us awake out of that way of thinking where everything is just the same. 
And it wakes us up and it says, no, stop living in that, that frame of mind where everything is just the default mode network. Right? That's the thing that prevents free will. Start living at the higher level of consciousness. You know, I think Sam Harris talks about that in a few different uh, rabbis these days as well. When we're living normally in our lives, a certain part of our brain is, is, is functioning that's not really lucid. It's not really paying attention to what's going on in the here and now. Once you, if you meditate enough, if you train yourself enough, you're able to really live on that higher plane of existence where you're really appreciating the moment. You're appreciating what's going on. You're not taking things for granted. All right, so we, we do have a fear of responsibility. B'nai Yisrael is not sure what's going to be happening, and we don't want the uncertainty of that. So let's go back to the text. We complain, and then we see Moshe takes action. All right, what does he do? He cries out to God. God shows him a tree branch. Moshe cures the water. It might even be just a chemical thing that he figured out. Now that's the key is that Moshe learns a tremendous lesson here. What's the lesson that he learns? This is a, uh, an important challenge that we face early on. It's the first challenge we really face after having left Egypt and, and leaving the Egyptians behind. right? So because of this point of uncertainty, when, and when we had a leader who was willing to take proper action and say, you know what, okay, we're in a tough situation, let me do something. Like the Hachamim say, it aruta de creates it aruta which means when you do action on the earth, their action starts to get done in Shamayim. Right? When we see Moshe Rabbeinu arrives at Har Sinai, he does the same thing. God doesn't call him up the mountain. Immediately it says Moshe Allah, and Moshe went up the mountain. And the Hachamim are trying to say something here that don't wait for God to tell you, come and ascend. Just do it. Just go and ascend. You notice the situation in a certain way. Take that as an opportunity. Don't wait for God to come down in a, on a, in a miracle to try to force you to ascend. Just ascend. And I think that's a beautiful idea. And because of, as a result of this challenge that we went through, we had a very important formative experience. And that was a kind of a mini law giving. Right? We have this, this mini law giving as a preparation for the Decalogue for the Ten Commandments. And it's called Haku Mishpat. And that's all we know about it. So it seems that it's, it's, it's giving us the very basic principles of responsibility and accountability. It's a very early stage in the thinking of the nation, right? So like we said, it's the, the value of the human initiative. Now the next thing is really interesting, the next pasuk. So pay attention to these words. Vayavo Elima. B'nai Israel now arrive at a place called Elim. And this place called Elim... It says, for some strange reason, I always read this and had no idea what the Torah's purpose could be in telling me these random numbers. Now, Michael Tabelli, I want you to tell me what you think this means. There were 12 springs of water and 70 date trees. What are the numbers? First of all, Mike, you know what the numbers 8 and 13 have come to symbolize throughout all our classes. So what would the numbers 7 and 12 symbolize? 7 and 12, that's... Uh... Like in the musical octave, before eight, you have do, re, mi, fa, sol, la, ti, and then you have do, which is a new beginning again. So it's like a birth again, so it's the old Beautiful. way to the new way. It's the old order. Very good. It's, there's, there's, it's the natural way of things, right? It's There's seven days in the week, seven musical notes, seven col colors in the spectrum. Everything about seven is the, is the old perfection. What would you say, Mike? And then eight is one again. Beautiful. So 
Eight and thirteen is the is the level that God is asking us to live on. He's saying, you know, the the history of humanity has been operating on the level of seven and twelve. Bnei Israel are being called upon to live on a higher level. We're being called. Say it again. Exactly above the teva, right? Uh, uh, beyond the teva, and that's what the berit, the the, the, the that's covenant. How we were created. That's how the nation formulated. That's why he told Abraham to come outside and look above the teva. Exactly. Exactly. And what day? What day do you get a brit milah? What day? Eighth the, day. the eighth day, because the eighth is the, the symbol of the covenant. Noah, there's eight times it says berit. There were eight people on the teva. The, the sign of the Berit is the Keshet, which is Gematria 800. I only use Gematria if it's actually reflecting something in the text. But you get my point. So if that's what 8 and 13 symbolizes, then 7 and 12 symbolizes the old order, the natural order. What does it mean? We get to a place called Elim. Now if you know Hebrew, what does the word El mean? Two. El, no, what does it mean with its Sereh? It means, <laughs> it means God, right? Mikamocha, oh. we just said, Mikamocha ba Elim Hashem, right? The place is called Elim, right? So we get to a place uh, called Elim now, right? And there's, there's 70 date trees and 12 springs of water, right? And that's where we get to. Let's go to the next chapter. They go from Elim now, and what's the place called? They get to Midbar Sin. All right, and where is it? Where is Sin? It's Ben Elim or Ben Sinai, right? It's between Elim, which is gods in a sense, right? It's symbolizing the idea of gods, of polytheism, of the pantheon that we left behind in Egypt, and Sinai. What's Sinai? Sinai represents monotheism. And what's the name of the place? It's Sin. It's not quite Sinai. It's still at the borderline between the two, and it's still symbolizing the old order. It's the, and that could be the Hakum Mishpat that Moshe was learning. He's developing a sense of morality with, of course, God's intervention here. But that, that, that level of intervention has not yet reached what we would want to see when, once we get to uh, the covenant at Sinai. But it's still a valuable thing, right? You have to get to 7 and 12 to get to 8 and 13. So we're at Sin instead of Sinai. We're Ben Elim Ben Sinai. This is the liminal moment. And when is it? This, this is the one month anniversary of our leaving Egypt. And what do you know? Again, we start complaining. So let's go back to our notes. All right, so it's not quite Sinai. We're between monotheism and polytheism. We have all the symbolism of the old order. And Hashem is challenging us at this point. This is really the liminal moment. It's the, the moment of change where we could decide, are we going to go back to our old habits? Are we going to go back to living as slaves? Right, that's what we did throughout our life before coronavirus. Many of us, we 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 didn't really have a way of living where we were necessarily conscious of everything we were doing. I know, for for one, I took a lot of things for granted. I took going outside without a mask for granted. I I took hanging out with my friends for granted. I took all these things, going to a restaurant for granted. That's almost like being a slave to the the uh, default mode network in my mind. I decided part of my my you know time during coronavirus, in addition to my medical studies, whatever I'm studying with Torah, I'm going to dedicate to really growing through meditation, growing through this idea of really being more conscious of what's going on around me. And I hope to bring that forward after this. So that's what it means to really be free after uh, an experience of slavery. It doesn't have to literally be only just slavery. And now look at this. 
There's also a linkage between Refidim and the next episode, right? In Refidim, Bnei Yisrael are complaining for, uh, I believe it's water at that point. Right? And and the next thing that happens, what does it say? Vayavu Amalek. So let's go take a look at that. Right? The, the, everyone's complaining. They don't have any food to eat and seen. Right? They get the man. Just to reach on the next point here. Right? They go to Refidim here and they complain for water. And now we see something very interesting. Right, Bnei Yisrael are complaining for water. But by the way, before we say that, God is telling Moshe, you're going to get a, a water at this place. Behorev, the same place as Har Sinai, and Horev is like Harava. Right, we read in the beginning of the parasha about the dry land of the splitting of the sea. Here is Horev, the dry mountain, and what's to be done at the dry mountain, as opposed to the beginning of the parasha where the wet sea became dry. Here we're trying to make the horev, which literally means dry, become wet. Wet with what? With water. Right? B'nai Yisrael are thirsty for water. I don't think this is just water we're talking about here. I think like the Hachamim say, En ma'im ela Torah. The Torah is, is all, very often, very frequently symbolized by water. And even, like uh, a few of my teachers have said before, even could be a play on words for nevu'ah. Right, so with Moshe, the idea of an Evan, and here Moshe being Omed al right? It's, it reminds us of God revealing the Yagmidot later on. This could all be foreshadowing. So there's a lot of things going on here. So, Bnei Yisrael are really fighting. This is a, a difficult process to, to discover our faith, to discover this new freedom that we're being given. They're testing God here. Is God really in our midst? How many times do we live on a level where we are not conscious of God's involvement in our lives? I think very often, unfortunately, we get lost in the task at hand. And mindfulness is the cure to that. Mindfulness through mitzvot, through following halakha, through meditation, whatever it is that helps you be mindful of things, that allows you to realize, yes, God is in your midst at all times. That's what God is. God is, the Shekhinah is a way of, of saying this, of B'nai Israel as, as a whole, and as an individual person, realizing that you are a conscious being who has free will to do good things and to determine certain elements of your destiny, and the things that you cannot determine of your destiny, you, you embrace those things as well, and you roll with the punches, and you go with the flow of life. Right, so look at that. B'nai Israel. they open up this question, and what's the next pasuk? Amalek. And the Amalekites come, and they go and they start fighting against Ben Israel and Rifidim. So what does that mean on a symbolic level? I think it's as follows. I think on a symbolic level, Ben Israel were not able to destroy this element of their thinking. What does Amalek represent? It represents this question because of the juxtaposition. Amalek represents... The question of, is God really involved? When we find ourselves at points in our lives when we find ourselves down. In the, in, Mike, yes? Mike, it sounds like from the beginning when they approached Par'or and they said to Par'or, Hashem, Yudke sent me. And Par'or right away said, I don't notice God. The defilement of Nisreen 
beautiful. I agree 100%. Like, and I'll, I'll give you the, the beautiful way that Rabbi Sachs puts it. He says as follows. He says, it was easy to take Israel out of Egypt, but it was not so easy to take Egypt out of Israel. Right? There's a certain element that we imbibed. We, we kind of bought into their way of thinking and, and the way of thinking that was imposed on us. Right? We, we had this, this way of thinking that was a slave mindset. And this is the challenge, is to get that way of thinking out of us. To stop living the way we used to live, right? So, to, and and that's what Amalek represents. And our our ability to fight against Amalek is an internal struggle as well. It's fighting that idea. That's you know everything about our existence in the desert was fighting this notion that God is not involved in our lives. And it's saying God is involved. Fight against what Amalek represents. And we mentioned in a previous class, right, that that Shaul Hamelech. Failed to destroy Amalek. What does that mean? That means exactly what we're talking about. That that he was not able to get rid of that idea that God's that, that God's not involved. You know, God is involved, and that's what he, he's trying to make us realize with all of this. And you don't have to take it on a, on a sense of God is 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 kind of controlling things. That's not what you know. God is a great parent. What does a great parent do? A great parent provides the child with the framework. And, and a great parent empowers the child to make good decisions for himself. So I, the way I would put it is, God is not writing the story for me. God is the one who created the pen and created the paper, and he gave me the pen and paper to write my own story. So it's that realization, right, that, that we need to have as we go through this experience in the desert, as we grow from childhood to adulthood, as we, you know, go through this time of coronavirus, as we mature as individuals. Absolutely. That's exactly our goal. Our goal is to is to show that. Beautiful. I, I really love that. And I think that's exactly what every Midrash, every statement by the Hachamim about Yemot HaMashiach, that they're going to come and they're going to say, teach us your ways we want to know. We want to understand what does it mean to be an Israelite? What does it mean to have the, the world run by such a, an amazing you know God? And, and this is what it means. It means to realize that God is the one who's providing us with this stuff. He's the one that's the ground of being. He's not controlling, you know, our free will. But he's, he is controlling certain elements of what happens. And he's allowing us to decide certain things for ourselves. So it's interesting to note as, as well. I think this is really amazing. The lack of faith that we always see with B'nai Israel comes with matters of food and water. But the faith that we did have almost always comes as a result of the battles that we have against Mitzrayim and Amalek. Right? And as they say, there's no atheist in a foxhole. So we often take things like water and food for granted. Those are the things that we struggle with you know, when it comes to having faith with God because it's, it's very easy to just say, oh, there's water and there's food. But when there's a real challenge, when there's something like a battle against an, ama- a, 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 an amazing empire, that's when it really draws forth our deepest selves. And that's when we really need to step up as individuals. Right? So the, the point here... At the darkest time is when the greatest light comes. That I love it. All of it happened at precisely midnight, the destruction of the firstborn, and 
when it was at the darkest moment, that's our salvation. So we got to know, also, Hashem's always with us. Wow. Also in Bereshit, it's Tova Vo Vachoshef and then Vahiyor. Wow, wow, wow. Wow, yes, that's exactly Mike? it. Wow, you guys are awesome. This is really, uh, I can't agree more. And I, I think, you know, there's a great way of putting it. You, you must hit your lowest point in order to have the greatest change, right? You know, when you, when, or when you kind of fall to rock bottom, it's the perfect opportunity to reinvent yourself. But you don't have to fall to rock bottom. You don't have to reach the worst possible level in order to, to revamp everything. You could do that right now. So what the Torah is saying is, Hashem is saying, I want you to have the same degree of faith, of faithfulness, of emunah in me, in whatever it is that you do. Not just when it's easy. Not just, you know, when it's obvious to have that faith. But when it comes to simple things like food and water. Don't take that for granted. Don't take for granted that you could go see your friends. Don't, don't take for granted going to a restaurant. These things are all going to be much more appreciated after coronavirus. Right? So we need to be consistent. Yeah, Mike. Um, it's interesting that it's in the time of Aviv because, you know, this Aviv is the time when, when like a seed that's shackled in the ground before and it blossoms. It the seed like, composes uh, first. Yes. Yes. Right, right. That's interesting. Also. Yes, exactly. And, uh, and the, the time of the birth of Bnei Israel is the time of the, the growth, of the blossoming of the trees. Uh, Beautiful. Things are... And that all happened because of the disintegration of it, right? That's that's the amazing thing. It all came to nothing. Uncle Joey, you're my MVP. Wait, I wanted to say one other thing that all Please. of you should listen to. And we have a book of the Ham Yitzhak and Yaakov, but the card of the whole thing that Kriyat Yamsu was the Yusod of Yosef Hasadi because it was on the sixth, on the seventh night, which is his night, the sixth of the, the Omer, he is he represents your sword and he was controlling his um his sword and therefore the Mayim ran away because the way wow. he so we have to look at our abort and our and we have great leaders to that we from Am Yisrael that we should put into ourselves. I love that. I think that you, what you're saying is beautiful. That's exactly yes. Vayanos, yes, beautiful. Wow. Wow, wow, that is powerful. So basically, what you guys are talking about is the midrash that says when the Yamsuf saw the the uh, the the um, the bones of Yosef, right? What's the the sarcophagus of Yosef? The the waters ran away. And what the Hachamim are trying to say with that beautiful deep bendrash is that Yosef HaSadik went against his inner drives, you know, his natural state of being, if you will. And he lived on the level of 8 instead of 7 and 12. He lived on the higher level of existence. Above nature. Above nature. Instead of just giving in to his internal drives, he did what was moral. He says, how could I do that? It's just immoral. He says, And the word Elohim that he uses is very specific because that's the way that the universal understanding of morality, right? Yirat Elohim in the Torah doesn't mean, oh, this religious thing. It just means a universal sense of an understanding of what morality is. And that's who Yosef was. That's what we need to emulate. You want your heart. The action is very important. 
but he wants your heart. He wants you to know I'm echad with you. Be echad with me. I love know it. Know that I got you. Absolutely. I think you could you could feel God's presence in you when you're doing a moral I action. The highest level is feeling Hashem in your bones. Wow. I love that. The way my rabbi in Israel used to put it, he says as follows. He says, all of existence is like a dream. And the dream is being dreamt by God. Each of us, right, like Ibn Ezra Harambam say, the most cryptic statement. They say about Hashem, Hashem's knowledge is very different than our knowledge. Right? You say, how could God know what I'm going to choose? And then how could that be free will? There's no free will if God knows what I'm going to choose. What do they say? They say as follows. They say, they say, when it comes to God's knowledge, God is the knower, He is the known, and He is the knowledge. The way my rabbi would put that is, God is the dreamer, He is the dreamt, and He is the dream. Right? So we are, in, in a sense, extensions of God. And when we do the right thing, when we act morally, we could feel that way. We could feel God's spirit, God's shekhinah with us, doing that thing, even if it's a small thing. You should open yourself to that flow of energy. Open if yourself Adam to that didn't feeling. Make the Avon, he would have been a god. If Adam didn't make the Avon, he would have been a god. He would have been able to create. Amazing. And I think we all are able to create in a sense. We all have that Selim Elohim inside of us that is flowing through us when we do the right thing. So just for the sake of time, we'll continue, even though I'm absolutely loving this discussion. Right? So what we can conclude is that the Torah is going beyond the level of history. It's teaching us, every single one of us, that as individuals, what this is what it means to be free. It means to know that Hashem is with us in everything we're doing. He's flowing through us. He's, you know, he's, in, you know, encouraging us that in no matter what we're doing, whether it's just food and water or it's a tremendous battle that we're fighting, we need to put our faith in Him and know where that He is the one that's empowering us to go and be great, right? So, like Rabbi Sachs would say, a good leader creates followers. But a great leader creates leaders. Hashem is not interested in creating followers. right? God's not interested in creating a nation of sheep. He's creating a nation of leaders. He wants everyone to be free, not just following their habits and their instincts. Create good habits, create good instincts, but live on that extra high level of 8 and 13. Move from the Elim to Sinai. right? So being free means to have the courage to trust both in God and in the talents that He gave you. God is not going to do it alone. He has no interest in creating everything on his own. He has an interest, like we said, from Ma'asib al-Ashit in having a relationship with us. And how does he do that? He does that by empowering us to live and, and do the right thing and live you know, in, a, in a way that makes us understand his presence in, in our lives. So if you ever read the, the book, uh, let me remember what the name is. It's by Brene Brown. It's uh, Daring Greatly comes from that quote from uh, Teddy Roosevelt about, you know, that it's it's not the man who succeeds at everything that deserves all the credit. The credit belongs to the man in the arena, the one who's marred by dust and sweat and blood. And if he succeeds, then great. But if he fails, at least he failed while daring greatly. And he has, his, he has no place with those poor and timid souls who know neither victory nor defeat. Right? So what that means is, it's not about if you succeed. It's not about if you win or lose. It's about trying. It's about living vulnerably with God. That's what we did when we left. You know, uh, like Yidmiyahu says, one of my favorite Pesukim, Lechtech Aharai Bamidbar, right? He says, Zachadila Chesed Ne'uraich Ahavat Kilulotaich. I remember the days of your, your, when we first got married, and you were like my bridegroom, and I was the groom. 
Alright, so that's what it means to live vulnerably with God. So as we're living our lives out today, or in the future now, we need to realize just how vulnerable things are. Things are not to be taken for granted. We don't know if we're going to wake up tomorrow. We don't know what the next thing is, is going to bring. But we need to appreciate everything. And that's what, you know, it's not about an afterlife. It's not about Yemot HaMashiach. It's about this precious life that was given to us right here and right now. So that's what the Torah is urging us to do. We need to follow in the footsteps of Moshe. We need to say, let's take action like Moshe did. Take control as much as we can of our national and personal destinies. Don't sit and wait for God to swoop in and save you. All right, so you need to trust that when you act properly and you remember the, the berit of the, of the avot, Hashem Himself is going to dwell among you. Right? And, you're, and you're going to feel His Shekhinah flowing through you. That's what it means to be free. It's a, it's a, a marriage between your will and God's will. And when you do that, when you live in that level of existence, you'll be able to feel God's spirit with you in everything that you do. Baruch Amen. And I want to open up to questions if anybody has. I just want to say, Michael, you were amazing. God bless you. <laughs> Thank you. Find the right girl. <laughs> a lot of great stuff. I love you. I really love you, Uncle Joey. Thank you. Amen. Any questions? I have a Please, yes. So I had a teacher in high school and he used to always say like freedom, it's kind of the ability to be able to control your mental state and the way that you operate within the world. And I felt like that's beautiful. And question I wonder why um, it took it took so many of Bnei Say it again. It took so many what? There were so many times where Bnei Israel were complaining before Hashem finally was like, "Okay, this is it. This is the final time." He sends an Amalek. Yeah. And so why, like, why do you think that that was the time where he decided this is the moment that? Great question. I think it's exactly what we, we said about the Pasuk that comes right before it says Vayavo Amalek. Right before it says that Amalek came, what does it say? Ben Israel asked the question straight up. They say, Hayesh Adonai Bekirbenu Imayin, is God in our midst or not? And when you open up that question, that's exactly what you're opening up to. You're opening up to, the, to what Amalek represents. And they represent the doubt, the, 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 the idea that no, God just you know created the world and left. He like the clockmaker theory. He doesn't care. We're all just living out these random lives where nothing really matters. You know what? That could be the, the case if you decide to live that way. It's your decision. If you decide that God's not involved, you know what? God's not going to be involved. If you decide that everything is happenstance and everything is a coincidence, then you know what? It's going to be that way. But if you use your free will and you decide, you know what? I'm going to meditate every day and I'm going to connect to the deeper levels of existence and reality. You know, the way Albert Einstein put it so beautifully, he says, in only one sense am I a religious man, Albert Einstein says. He says, I'm a religious man when it comes to the mystery of it all. The idea that, you know, there's so many things beyond us, beyond our comprehension. Or as Stephen Hawking would put it, he says, and this is a guy who everyone thinks is an atheist, he asks the most religious thing, he says, why should there be something rather than nothing? There's all the, these equations in physics. What is it that breathes the fire into the equations? These are not questions that science can answer. These are only religious questions. The question of existence rather than non-existence. The question of the human condition. 
and it's in our opportunity to connect to the deeper levels of ourselves. And, and when we do that, we find God waiting for us over there. I think also the distinction of, you know, saying, is God with us or it's not with us versus, you know, why isn't God giving us this or that? It's at first they're, you know, saying, oh, God doesn't care about us, but in the second, they're really saying, oh, he doesn't care at all. Yes, a hundred percent. And this is a, a new level of doubting, and I think that's exactly why Amalek comes at that juncture. Beautiful. I really it's appreciate that. Interesting that the the, mara, the, 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 the interaction at the at the water when when it was bitter. You know what else is a bitter? You know tears are are you know and they're 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 then Moshe threw the tree into the water and it became sweet and they realized that there's like. Uh, there, Hashem is uh, helping, and it's, it's good, and, and, it's, and it's sweet. Absolutely. I think, like we said, all this whole stuff, this whole deal with water in the desert, doesn't just mean water in the desert. It means the attempt of a people to find that freedom within the desert. You know, you could be in this transitional moment between Egypt and Israel, right? Egypt represents one extreme and the desert represents another extreme. This is from Rabbi Elhanan Samet. He says, Egypt represents uh, an existence where we rely completely and utterly on our masters, right? And we have, God is kind of not involved at all. Everything comes from the Nile, right? Everything is just naturally grown. You don't need to rely on God. But then you get to the desert, it's the opposite polar extreme, right? It's, it's a time when everything is from God. The man falls from heaven, there's the be'er of water, whatever it may be, everything is from God. Israel represents the happy medium between the two. It represents the, the time when we're, we have to rely on God for rainfall, but we also need to plow the land, we also need to you know, go into the mountains and, and take out the, the, the minerals and the metals, right? So that's, that's the ideal, that's the goal for us. Yeah, Mike, what did you say? Morid Hatal is the one who brings down the dew. It's kind of similar to like the Ram, Rambam. He says that, you know, you're supposed to always find the Dayah You're supposed to find like that golden mean in your You're supposed to find that golden mean of your personality between, you know, the two extremes. So it's kind of similar here because you want to find that you don't want to be in a slave mentality, but you don't want to be too, you know, you know, I guess, taking everything to have too much meaning where it's Absolutely. You know, the way I think about it is you could have an atheist, like a guy in Egypt who could be like the atheist. He's the one who believes everything is just random. There's no deeper story. There's no deeper meaning to it. And then the guy who's living in the desert is the guy who is just completely believing that God is, does everything and that there's no free will involved. Neither of those is preferable. Our job as Am Yisrael is to find the happy medium where we understand that God is involved. He is empowering us, but he's not determining the fate about everything. He, he's giving us the pen. He's saying, I want you to write the next chapter. And I want you to, to raise a nation where people know that. And they, they know that they are able to determine their destiny. Even in the tough times like now. You look at the quote that I brought from Viktor Frankl. You know, he's a guy who survived the Holocaust. He went through, you know, the worst things that anybody could ever really go through in life. 
And eventually, you know, he, he just decided he's going to take it as one big experiment in his mind. If he could take it as an opportunity to say, you know what, even in this circumstance, let me see if I could help people. Let me see if there's something they can't take away from me. They could take away my physical freedom, right? I, I'm, I'm stuck in this concentration camp with this threat of death looming over me at all times. But let me see if I could determine how I'm going to respond. I'm going to go around to all the other inmates here, and I'm going to try to go and help them. And I'm going to see if I could empower them to go on living and to find a reason to go on living. How amazing is that? If he could do that, I don't think there's any situation in our lives, no matter how bleak, where we have to worry about just, you know, giving up. You know, people talk about suicide, hasvish shalom. You know what? You want to commit suicide? Kill your old self. Kill your, kill your old ego. I was talking about this with my friend last night. Kill that part of yourself that, that believes that everything is really just, you know, happenstance and that God hates you. And recreate yourself. There's nothing wrong with committing suicide as long as you don't do it with a, with a knife, you know. As long as you do it in a, in a psychological way. I like that. It's, it's a beautiful, yeah, any questions? Anybody else? All right, guys, I'm going to let you go. Really, such a pleasure. I think we, we went so deep, and I, you guys were all amazing. Say it again. Thank you. Thank you. Really, my pleasure. So much fun, so much hizuk you guys give me. You're the best. Looking forward. Hag sameach, guys. You should all have a great hug and take all these ideas to heart. Bezrat Hashem. Thank you so much. Thank you, Michael. Thank you, guys. Go to. Yes, a couple weeks ago. What is it? What uh, in the magic box? Into the magic shop. Into the magic shop. Okay, I have to. Yeah. I want to ask you again for one one of these days. Yeah. It's so good. It has all these meditations in it, and it's like this nurse, this guy, he has no business becoming a nurse, and he has this awful, awful life, and he he like changes his entire life with meditation and the way that he thinks about things. It's Amazing. That's really incredible. And uh, yeah, I, I, I really, I think I want to be a psychiatrist, so it's right up my alley. <laughs> wow, really? All right, good luck. It's a long journey, but it's worth it. Yeah. All right. Hazakim Uburuchim, guys, really such a pleasure for me. Thank you all for attending.